Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Gia Tolentino, a staff writer at The New Yorker. Prior to joining the magazine, she was deputy editor at Jezebel. She's recently been writing about Harvey Weinstein, feminism, the Me Too movement, millennials, and a bunch of other subjects which I want to talk to her about today. She joins me now from our studios in New York. Hi, Gia. Hi, Isaac. For people who may not know, um, when did you start writing about politics and culture and other things uh, and where? You know, I don't know. I sort of ended up in media by accident. I was in grad school um, getting my MFA, and I started writing for The Hairpin, which tragically just shut down. Um, and I went, that was around 2013. And then in 2014, I moved to New York and started working as a features editor at Jezebel. And what was that experience like? It was, you know, it was great. It was the hairpin and Jezebel were different in a lot of ways. The hairpin was uh, was run by two people. It was just me and Emma Carmichael who um, brought me to Jezebel with her. But it was the the economics of online publishing hadn't contracted to quite the incredibly punishing point that they have been doing in recent years. And so, you know, two people could run a blog that would stay financially afloat and people would read it and you could not stay tight to the news cycle and you could publish stuff on 14th century curiosities and weird music. And, you know, it was um, a really unconstrained environment and I loved it. Uh, and Jezebel, it was interesting because um, Gawker was uh, RIP. It was an incredibly, there was almost no hierarchy at the organization whatsoever. It was completely horizontal. It was kind of, I felt conscious of while I was working there the whole time that this was kind of the last opportunity. Um, this was a unique opportunity to sort of be able to do whatever you wanted with an audience like that. And it was an interesting sort of high wire act to figure out how to use it. How, how do you think that manifested itself in in the stuff you were writing, that kind of horizontal nature of it and and how you're speaking to your audience? You know, there was a directness about it, I guess, because, you know, something I mean, this was the source of the mistakes that Gawker made, the mistakes that I made as an editor and also the source of the good things about that company, too, was that, you know, only three people had to look at anything before it went up. And so you had an extremely direct relationship to your audience, the subject. It, you didn't have to adapt it anyway. You were very exposed and bare about what you thought and how you approached it. And so I think it kind of inculcated a directness um, and kind of a sense that I was ultimately going to be held responsible for anything I had my hands on there. Um, no one would be held responsible but me for my stuff. And I think that was a useful sort of uh, way to get into journalism in and uh, knowing that that was always going to be true there. Well, l let me ask you about writing for Jezebel specifically, because yeah. you know, I, I guess I'm curious when 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 you started at Jezebel and just sort of the conversation around women's issues and feminist issues online, which mm -hmm. Jezebel was a big part of, uh, is a big part of. Mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering how you think that kind of played into the larger conversation Online, I was reading something at Slate. There was a conversation that a bunch of the women who were involved in in Slate Double X uh, were having about mm. what role Slate sites, excuse me, what role sites like Jezebel played, and 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 Double X, and and I think the the sort of conclusion they came to was that it was both incredibly helpful and freeing, and also constraining in certain ways. But but I'm curious what your experience about how it played into the larger conversation was. How did they say it was constraining? I I, I bet I understand, but I I'm curious. Paraphrasing, but I, I think the argument was sure. sort of that essentially because it was it was all women writing these things and because of the way the Internet works, that there sort of became certain opinions that were, quote unquote, OK and certain opinions that weren't. And so it led to 
a variety, a, a version of groupthink about certain issues, but at the same time really opened up the conversation in other ways that just hadn't been there. Yeah, I mean, so one thing that happened at Jezebel while I was there under Emma, um, the edit, the readership became 50-50 male-female the time over the course of us working there. And um, the hairpin also, it was a women's blog, but it did not have a... It did not have a like vast majority female readership. And I think, you know, it was interesting. I kind of like double X and, and early Jezebel, like absolutely. Um, I think they were a huge part of the I mean, media is so much more feminist. It's so much more egalitarian in its values now than it was 10 years ago. And those blogs had a ton to do with that. Um, there it, there was, you know, there was sort of a what I sort of got frustrated with was this idea that there were women's issues, um, which I think we were quietly working to sort of discursively break down in whatever way we could. And I think I did feel pretty proud of the fact that we did mostly write about women at Jezebel, but the readership became 50-50 because, you know, women's issues aren't a silo, an isolated silo. Um In terms of the sort of constraint of agreement, this is something that I just published something on, like, 10 minutes ago. I read it uh, right I think before that, you and, got on the podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think this like, you know, there's an environment of scarcity, you know, when, when, when women's issues are, you know, put in a corner, there's an environment of sort of scarcity. I think you're seeing it in kind of right now, this idea that if women don't react in the exact same way to all the stories they're hearing right now, then the idea that we can push back on sexual misconduct is sort of like in peril. And that drives me nuts. Like it always drove me nuts that, um, there was a sort of thing at Jezebel where someone would be like, well, I don't agree with that decision to publish that. And I was like, that makes perfect sense to me. Like, you know, if you agreed with all of the things that I do, you would be living a life that was exactly like mine and you shouldn't be, you know. Um, but there is sort of a like a historically entrenched, like completely reasonable when you take in the context of how little time women have had to, you know, s- speak and write independently. Um there is a sort of sense of scarcity that leads to a need for agreement, which I think, you know, is slowly, I mean, we can, we're slowly still trying to argue against that. Or I am, I guess. Well, it's also, I mean, I think with women's issues, similarly with racial issues, is that you want to sort of say a women's issue is a human rights issue, or it's an issue, it's an American issue, or it's a world issue, rather than it's just a woman's issue, the way you do with racial issues. At the, so you, you want to sort of universalize it to make it clear that this is something that should concern everyone, but at the same time, yeah. you don't want to sort of um, uh, get into a all, all lives matter type, um, you know, where you, you do want to point out the ways in which these issues are specifically about women or specifically about a minority group or something like that. Yeah, I guess it's always it's always confused me the idea that like you have to have a personal that, you know, for for people to be invested in something, they have to have a personal stake in it. You know, I think um, that's always that's always baffled me. <laughs> the, like fathers who have daughters finally understand. Yeah, exactly. Women right. Get a, right. It's uh, like, why does that make why does that make any difference to you? Right. Well, yeah. it's it's I mean, it clear. I mean, just to go back to what you said earlier, though, you said, you know, uh, about publishing things. You said people don't have my experiences. They're going to be different from me. So in some sense, it's true that our experiences make up um, who we are. But at the same time, it seems like it should not be defining your values, even if it does to some extent. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, lately, like, you know, over the past year, I've had, you know, I've like been at the bar and I'll be depressed because of some like DACA thing. And, you know, I'm not an undocumented inter- immigrant. Oh, and like, actually, okay, so I was at Baby's All Right when Doug Jones won. And and it was like, you know, remember how like that night I was just everyone, the whole bar was just screaming with happiness. And I was like so happy. And I was talking to this guy who I just met. And he was like, well, and I was like, aren't you just so happy? And he was like, well, you know, it's it's not as personal for me because, you know, I'm a cis white guy. And I was like, no, no, no. Like my investment in in Doug Jones winning is not because I'm a woman of color. You know, it's like I live in I live in Fort Greene. You know, I have this incredibly protected life. It's not personal. It's a you know, and I, I think that and and I was just reminded of how sort of common that idea is that we are invested in things to, to the degree. I mean, the fact that we have specific experiences based in identity in America is separate, I, I think, can be very easily separated from the fact that, you know, everyone's issues are everyone's issues. Well, let me just ask you, because I want to transition a little bit, uh, but you mentioned the column you just wrote. You wrote something in the Mm -hmm. column, which I was hoping you would respond to, which is, I'll just read what you wrote. Quote, the internet makes things more confusing. The world of sexual misconduct and confusion stands in front of us, exposed and quasi-litigated in new tweets and posts and essays every day. I wonder if we're overestimating how much we can affect stories and situations that we have nothing to do with. What, What do you mean by that? Well, I think this is a problem of the internet. In general, I think, um, you know, I've written this before and I I keep I think about it, you know, almost every day where the Internet has especially a sort of the speed of things like the sort of inevitable technological acceleration. Like the Internet makes it possible for us to know about an infinite number of things. And I, I think our world at the same time is sort of contracting so that, you know, there's less and less we can do about things. It's not like it's not like we I mean, maybe there's less and less at the very least, the number of things that we can, I think, really have an impact on is pretty static. It's pretty limited to our physical worlds and our situations and our communities and our offices. But the Internet puts the whole world of trouble at our laps. And I think there's a sort of psychological like um there's this cognitive dissonance that comes in there where we feel like we're responsible for everything, but we can't actually be. And I wonder if it distorts our sense of wh- of how much we can actually affect in the circles that we actually actually interact with. Well, I, and I think yeah. you see. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I've noticed that about Trump stuff generally, which is when the healthcare debate was going on or the tax debate, people would say, like, they're trying to, sl- you know, sneak this in without without press. And, you know, to agree that was true, they were trying to do things in the back room and so on. But it was also this kind of idea of like, if we don't tweet about this, then this bill is going to pass. And, you know, of course, activism can have some effect, but um, the things, even something like calling a congressional office, it's, it's limited in how these things actually work and what power we have. And I think sites like Twitter or apps like Twitter really, um, they make us think that we're more active participants and we have more power than we actually do anyway. Right. And I, you know, in writing this column, I was, you know, I don't want to be like categorical about it because it's true. Like, especially, I mean, the, the, the difference between speech and action, the the line is blurring, you know, I don't think it's always a clear delineation, but you know, like, I don't know, like there is definitely a false imperative to have like sort of to have, have an assessment of all of these situations involving all of these people who will never meet, you know, especially as it comes to sexual misconduct, you know, it's like, 
I'm just not sure that what I think about Aziz Ansari matters that much. I'm not sure that any I'm not sure that like the the precision of my take on any specific scenario that I will never have any physical overlap with really matters. And I say this like even as a professional writer, like I'm just not sure. Um, I'm I'm not. I'm not sure about these boundaries between speech and action right now. And I think that we feel responsible for sort of litigating and understanding and policing and curbing the way we talk about all this stuff right now. And I don't think we need to. I think it's like it's fine if someone speaks up in a way that we don't think is is good. It's it's fine. Like like what does our saying what does our trying to police it really do? I I just don't um, like maybe I'm feeling fatalistic, but. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to, like, just keep these things in mind right now. Yeah, you write in the piece, the fact of a hashtag flattens these stories makes them seem unified, but they are profoundly individual. Um, the the yeah. piece is called The Rising Pressure of the Me Too Backlash. And w- one thing, you know, I just interviewed uh, Katha Pollitt, um, who's a feminist mm. writer for The Nation and other places. And one of the things that she said was that she she is you know, very excited about the Me Too movement. The one critique she had, which um, you kind of offhandedly alluded to by mentioning Aziz Ansari, was that she's worried that it's become too focused on individuals. And so... um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, with sexual assault generally, and I've been working on a print piece about this, which is why my head's sort of all over the place. Like, you know, we think of it in terms of punishment and adjudication, you know, um, which is important in some ways. But it also for me personally, like after the Weinstein story broke, all all these stories came up and people were really interested in what was going to happen to each particular man, you know, who was getting exposed as having done all this stuff. And I, and that really I don't care, you know, like I I don't care what happens to to so-and-so person that I've never heard of, you know, I don't care exactly how his workplace is going to punish him. Like what I care about is what's going to change about that workplace to keep from happening again. The focus on the individual is inevitable because these stories come out and they are, you know, like gripping and horrible. And, you know, we want to talk about the specifics, specifics because we're still not sure of how to even understand this paradigm, but it's not, it's not, I mean, the, the real issue is how, we reorganize our institutions so that there is just more equity, I think. And that doesn't have a ton to do with the specific investigation and adjudication of men that have already done this, I think. Right. I mean, the the other case, which, um, you know, Masha Gessen in your magazine, The New Yorker, and some other writers have kind of been saying is that um, the reason that what happens in these situations is important is because too much kind of policing of it and too harsh punishments for people who commit bad behavior combined lead to a kind of sex panic, which is a uh, somewhat silly phrase that's been circulating a lot. Um, And that that really could have negative societal consequences going forward. Um, I, I gather from what you're saying, that's an argument that you're not sympathetic to. Yeah, I'm not sympathetic to that argument at all. But at the same time, you know, it's like <laughs> I'm that that's an argument I think that's made in good faith mostly. Like it's just not a perspective that I agree with at all. I think it's it's about power, it's not about sex. Like nobody like women especially my age I think are much less confused about um like don't really see this as sex having anything to do with it. You know, it's like it's not like flirting is going to be taken off the table. It's not like it's not like people like I think the the fear of women being infantilized by this movement is also a little bit infantilizing. But at the same time, like I think that there are 
arguments against the movement that are made in good faith and you can tell that. And I think that's one. I just happen to not agree with it. You mentioned your generation. Um, what what um, are people people your age? Um, how old are you? Can I ask that? I'm 29. Okay, so 29. You and your piece and elsewhere um, have kind of mentioned that some women writers of an older generation than you kind of tend to have a, or in many cases, at least of articles that have been published in major major news organizations, have a different take a little bit on this than people who are, let's say, millennials, uh, for lack of a better word, um, <laughs> uh, which there must be a better word. It's, it's stuck, though. We're stuck with it. Yeah. No, I guess what I'm wondering is how do you sort of see that difference, broadly speaking? And is has there anything mm-hmm. you've you kind of have made of it? I, I've been trying something lately. I, so I tried something for a year at Gawker, which is I would try to write pieces that had strong arguments and no conclusions and nobody noticed. And I thought that was really good. Like I, I was like, oh, good. You can write you can write a strong piece without needing to be sure of anything. And that taught me a lot. And I'm kind of trying to cleave back to that because I think this sort of grasp for certainty in the middle of something that is so young and we no idea how our world is changing really. Um, I think it can just be so psychologically punishing to need to be sure right now. So I'm not sure of anything. I will say that one thing about the generational differences, you know, the one thing that I've noticed that I like have that I do think is unnecessarily bad There is often a need like you see a sort of subconscious or conscious need for women who processed this dynamic of sexual inequality and, you know, abuse of power in different ways. And there's this subconscious need for them to say that because they handled it in a certain way that that way must there must have been something good about that way. Like that way must be vindicated. We can't ignore it. We can't we can't. you know, we have to remember that at one point what you would do was, you know, like whack them on the knee with a newspaper or, you know, like like whatever, whatever ways. We don't even have newspapers anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that is an impulse that I think I hope starts dissolving, you know, like this idea that, well, I handled it this way and like there should there's got to be room for this kind of thing. Like, why aren't more women doing it like this or like why aren't we making space for this to be a kind of way that women you know handle their lives and I think you know there are ways that I've handled this dynamic in my life that I think are good and fine but that I would never say are categorically you know categorically good you know like I would never I can't imagine myself 20 years from now being like well this is how I handled it what about why don't we make room for these experiences anymore I sort of think you know it can be okay to have lived through something and not need to be exemplary in any way and not need to vindicate your experience to anybody. I think it's completely natural that all these different generations and micro generations of people would have experienced sexual inequality at the workplace and processed it and dealt with it in different ways. We've had so many waves and backlashes of feminism that have intercut through this. People do what they have to do. And I think it's... um, I mean, I was on Brian Lair with, um, you know, a woman who I think she's in her 70s, you know, and and we had completely different perspectives about um, all of this. And it was fine, you know. Right. Um, I I think that's sort of how it should be. So let me ask you, you started, we started talking about media Um, when the when the so-called shitty media men list became an issue, which I know you've written about. Mm -hmm. um, Did. I guess maybe if you could talk about your experience in the media and whether you think anything involving 
uh, gender dynamics, maybe that's the wrong phrase for it, male misbehavior have changed? And and also what, what you thought about the list when it was published and how you feel about it now? When I saw that list, I I felt a lot of complicated ways. I felt afraid for the people that wrote on it, for the women that created it. I felt frustrated by how much of the conversation would go to what if we're lumping all this male misbehavior together, you know, versus look at all these people at major publications who were accused of serious, you know, really serious things. Um, There were people on that list, you know, I will say like the people that I know on that list, um, nearly all of it corresponded to things that I'd heard in real life from multiple people. Um, I think the list was obviously easily tampered with. I, th- I, th- I happen to think it was. Um, and that frustrated me, too, because I knew, you know, we'd be talking about that. Um, but, you know, like that list had some people on it that I've stopped talking to over the last couple of years because the way they are with women that I knew long before that list came out. And um, and I also think, you know, there's been the list has sort of introduced this thing where it's like we have these edge cases where, you know, the the allegations against them are unspecified or they're lesser or we don't know them. So what if something went wrong? Like what if the system has like turned on, you know, people that really are innocent? Um, I think like the thing that came out today with uh, what's his name? Garrison Keillor. You know, we were like he was fired for like touching someone's back. And it like came out that there was a lot more to it than that. Yeah, it's shocking how almost nobody seems to be a one-time offender. It, it, if you know, if you're if you're someone who's going to misbehave with yeah. women, you're not just going to do it once in your life. Yeah, and you know there are absolutely many like many gradations of male misbehavior, and I I don't think like obviously not everything on that list was necessarily something that was within the bounds of HR. However, I do think if the people that were on that list that were on that list, you know. They're on that list for a reason. And I think, you know, we're finding in a lot of the cases where we don't know a lot, you know, it's just a lot. It might be just that stuff isn't public, you know, like where there's where there. I do think that where there's smoke, there tends to be fire. And, um, you know, what has happened to people that were on the list kind of makes that clear. There's a line that you hear people like in the ACLU say, which is essentially that which is you'd rather have a situation where 10 guilty people mm-hmm. go free than one innocent person is punished. Yeah, it's like that train track problem, right? It's like, you, are you going to pull the switch and, like, save the car well, or whatever? I, right. I, you know? uh, yeah, the trolley problem. I mean, I guess I guess it's... Um, yeah, yeah. I, I guess what I would say is that I, I, I completely agree with you around where the focus needs to be, which is how we change these environments. But I, I don't think... I, I do worry sometimes that... Um, inherently thinking that focusing on innocent people who may get caught up in something is somehow um, reactionary, which in many cases the focus is, is supposed is reactionary. The people who are making this point tend to be reactionary. I totally agree with that in this particular case. But I do think it's an important principle. I don't yeah. know. I don't disagree with you at all. I actually wrote something in that piece that got me, um, you know, like a lot of like uh, pushback from women where I was like, so this thing, ex- and I've written about anonymous accusations before. I think they're um, complicated and risky. I wrote about them in Jezebel in 2014 or 2015, or I'm not sure of the date, but the literary organization Vita published a list of anonymous accusations against a poet who got pushed out of Iowa. And I wrote about that, you know, arguing against the medium, you know, and I got some pushback from that. I, I don't, 
just because I think anonymous accusations tend to be true doesn't mean that I'm not, you know, that I'm that I have like a completely clear and, and I have never argued for like, uh, who cares if there's one false accusation? You know, like I I don't um, I actually don't even think that like there was a case of a news like a newspaper editor that was trying to find a woman that would write the the op ed that was like, you know, if one innocent man gets punished, like it's worth it to finally I don't actually really. I don't think that many people actually think that um, I don't think that many people have flipped from the liberal left argument. And I think that um, what I wrote in that piece was like there was something on that list I didn't think was true. And I I said that. And I think that that person's career has not ended for a reason. And I think that um, and I said, like, we have not now that we have these accusations, there is an obvious immediate obligation we have to triangulate it against real life and find out when the things aren't true and find out when they are. You know, like, I think um, I think the fact that these accusations exist, I think like both men and women could be less scared at the fact that any of them could be false. Like, of course, anything on that list could be false. It doesn't mean you can't check it out. Before before you go, um, let me ask you, just in, in the time you've been writing about all these issues, would would you say that anything fundamental about your worldview has changed uh, in a way that you kind of you, – you've mentioned a couple times that you feel is a crazy time and we're all thinking about so many different things? I mean, when you kind of think back to, to you in 2014 or 2013, is, is there anything that you, that you notice that's, that's particularly particularly different? about the way you think about these things? I think what feels different and feels great, actually, is that, you know, I started off writing, like, blogging, like, on what basically felt like a personal blog, and then, like, worked at a big website, and then now work at The New Yorker, and I've been writing kind of the same stuff the whole time, and it feels really nice that... You know, I really think there is less of a siloing of perspective. Like, so this isn't my worldview. I don't think my worldviews changed at all. <laughs> but, um, but, but I think it's it's pretty nice that like this this year wouldn't have happened if I don't know, kind of feminist egalitarian thought weren't kind of welcome everywhere now and and not named as such. And that. And that doesn't feel like a shift in worldview, but it might it feels like a shift in something that I feel glad to have kind of come into media at this time. Gia Tolentino is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can find all of her work at newyorker.com. Gia, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Do you love sports but hate the incessant blather of sports talk radio and the pointless, never-ending arguments of sports TV debate shows? I know I do. Then you should check out Hang Up and Listen, a weekly conversation about our favorite games, the athletes who play them, and what sports can teach us about society. Download and subscribe with your podcast app of choice to get a new episode every Monday.